0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Again, I'm going to read the whole chapter once, but when we start to go through it, I won't reread every verse, but make references to certain points. But I want you to hear the whole flow of this chapter. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold And of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, And have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing, or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen... Because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your heart, your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in the kingdom, in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that Light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple And have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High... God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets over it, whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of the house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, the bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence... The hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Well, this is the chapter on the famous feast of Belshazzar. This is a a very sobering and a striking chapter get one of the famous sayings out of this chapter, we see the handwriting on the wall. Where does that come from? That's out of the Bible right here, Daniel chapter 5. So we're done now with Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, the first after his father that we read about in chapters 1 to 4. We're not going to read about Nebuchadnezzar anymore. Now it's Belshazzar. So this is this account of this eerie writing, this mysterious message that God sent to this man while he's drinking and parting in this banquet that he celebrates with his lords and all of these people, thousands of people. There's been some pretty interesting images that have been painted and drawn to represent this. I went on... Line to look at some of these, see if I could use any of them. None of them were available. Might be trespassing, but uh, anyway, we don't need that. But anyhow, I want to look, think our way through this passage. First of all, I want you to note his feast and his sacrilege. Verses one to four: Belshazzar's feast and sacrilege. So he comes out of nowhere. Suddenly, in chapter 5, King Belshazzar made a great feast. Now, five or six times in the chapter, we're told that he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar is his father. But that is not literally true. Let me explain that to you, just for clarification. He was not the, the actual son of of Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, after a 43 year reign in Babylon, there were three successive kings of Babylon, the last of which was Nabonidus. Nabonidus is the actual father of Belshazzar, but it was typical for famous kings their successors, famous kings then who had successors on the throne, not necessarily a family connection, for them to be called the father of those kings that followed. And so I believe that that is the case here, that it's perfectly within the culture to refer to Nebuchadnezzar as the father of Belshazzar. His actual father was Nabonidus, if you want the the name. He's not found in the Bible, but he is in secular history and well-known. So there's no question about that. There is the belief that Nabonidus may have married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. No real proof of that, but it's possible. If it's true, then Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So there could be a connection there. But be that as it may, I want to explain that just so you don't get the wrong impression that he's the son. No, many years have gone by. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, and this is several years later. Now why is Belshazzar on the throne instead of his father? Nabonidus is well known. He took ten years to go to Arabia. Nabonidus did. He left Babylon and went to Arabia for a decade. And he entrusted the rule of his kingdom to his son. So his son became like the co regent of Babylon. And that's why Belshazzar is now the king. So he did not get this position independently. His father entrusted it to him. So that's where we are here. So, Belshazzar, he's going to try to impress all the lords in his kingdom with this banquet. Uh, He brought everybody into this huge palace where there are probably thousands of people. And he wants to impress them. No doubt, by the wine that was flowing and the food that was served and everything. And so after he had a few drinks and tasted the wine, he got a little tipsy and he got bold. So what does it say he did? After tasting the wine. Notice what he did. He commanded that the vessels of gold and silver, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had removed from Jerusalem many years before. When Jerusalem was plundered by the Babylonian army and the temple of Solomon was destroyed all of those treasures that were used in the service of the true God, the God of Israel. These were implements that were made back in the book of Exodus under Moses. All these vessels that were made for and were set aside. So they were very sacred. They were consecrated, holy in a certain sense, and set aside for the worship of the God of Israel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, when he took them, you know what he did with them? Remember, in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, He took them to the land of Shinar and he put them in the temple of his god, Marduk. And actually, there's something there that you are to see about Nebuchadnezzar. He protected them. He put them in a place where they were going to be protected. He didn't defile them. And this was the way it was in the pagan world. They did not want to offend the deities of another country. But Belshazzar gets so bold, he says, Bring me those vessels that my father has from Jerusalem. And so they passed him around and all his concubines and his wives and the lords, they filled him up with wine. They started to drink out of them. And they're toasting Marduk and praising the gods of gold and silver. In other words, all the deities of the Babylonian pantheon of gods that they had. This is the, the sacrilege that he committed This was a a very daring thing. He defiled them. He desecrated these sacred objects. This was a a dreadful thing that he did. And we're to catch that. Now, verses 5 through 12, the writing on the wall. Notice verse 5. Immediately, immediately this hand... An armless hand, and the language indicates that it was probably a hand that was severed at the wrist. Well, this is an armless hand. Appeared and began to write a message on the white plaster wall in the palace. Opposite, it says the lampstand. It's interesting, that detail. The lampstand was casting light so he could see it. And the writing was inscribed, in other words, it was etched into the plaster. So it was there kind of in a permanent way. Now it's interesting, when they've excavated the ancient ruins of Babylon, they found that there was plaster walls in the palace. So this agrees with the text of Scripture. Archaeology. This was a a terrifying sight. And notice what it says happened to Belshazzar. This is not meant to be funny, by the way. So we're not to it's not intended to make us laugh when we read that his knees knocked together and his color changed. But what happened? The blood drained out of his face, he became deathly pale, and he began to shake and tremble. He was terrified. Fear overtook this king. And he called loudly for all of the wise men in several groups are mentioned. Remember all the different groups? About a half dozen. When you put them all together, look at the list. There's about six different groups of wise men. These were guilds or classes who had their specialty in different aspects of the occult and uh obtaining esoteric knowledge through divination, and he brought all these men together to see if they could read the writing. Now, it says they couldn't read it. Now, it doesn't mean they're illiterate. They could read what the word said, but they could, what it means is they couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't give an interpretation. It meant nothing to them. Now, out of the blue here, the queen is mentioned. And notice the queen is not at the banquet. interesting who is the queen she's unnamed Uh, most likely it's probably his mother this is the queen mother but there's a reason why uh, I, I saw there could be an argument made from what she says to him that this could indeed be Nebuchadnezzar's daughter that married Nabonidus and is his mother She comes, notice she comes right into into the banquet, doesn't seek his permission. This is violating protocol in the ancient world. You had to always ask permission, you just did not barge into the presence of a king. She came right in. Now, she did say, Long live the king. May the king live forever. But it shows that she had a familiarity with him, an access to him. It was probably his mom. And she reminds him, and her language about Daniel is actually very similar to what Nebuchadnezzar said about Daniel. So it makes me think that this woman, this queen, was she goes way back to Nebuchadnezzar. And heard how he described Daniel. This, is, this, is, this was Nebuchadnezzar's language about Daniel. That he is one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Remember how many times we read that. That's Nebuchadnezzar's way of explaining that Daniel is filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, this is the queen. She remembers Daniel... She describes him in terms that resembles Nebuchadnezzar. So this gives the king, no doubt, hope that he's going to know what this message said to him. Now, in verses 13 through the end, this is a a larger section, of course. This is Daniel's interpretation and the fulfillment. So all at once, Daniel explains what it means, and then it's fulfilled that very night. No time delay here. Now, in verses 13 to 16, Daniel's brought in, and Belshazzar treats him with great respect and courtesy. I, I like how, how he, he talks to him. The king answers, he says to Daniel, he said, You are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. For those of you not familiar with Daniel, uh, the story here, back in chapter 1, Daniel was a teenager when Nebuchadnezzar first invaded Jerusalem, way back in 605 BC, and Daniel was carried away as an exile to Babylon. He was a teenager. That was many years ago. You know how old he is now? He's about 80 years old. He's an, an old man now. This is many, many years later. This is 539. Because this is a known date in the history, secular history, about when Babylon fell. Everybody knows the date. 539 B.C. The great city of Babylon was destroyed. It fell to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel's about 80 years old. So he's been, in the, he's been in Babylon all this time. He's well-versed in their literature, in their ways, in their language. Nebuchadnezzar had made him the, the president of the guild of the wise men. This is how important Daniel was. He could interpret mysteries and none of the other men knew. Daniel had such a an edge because he knew the true God who gave him his understanding of these mysteries. So he treats Jan- Daniel with great respect. Verses 13 to 16, he, he tells him what he's going to do for him, if he can interpret the, the dream. It's the... The purple cloth, that has to do with royalty. In the ancient world, purple was the color of royalty. So if he's going to give him uh, something that's purple, he's conveying the very best on Daniel. He's given him a royal robe or something of that nature. The very uh, highest. And a gold chain around the neck, that was an important signia as well, showing that you had been... Greatly honored, that could only come from a king. And being made third in the kingdom, there's some different ways. Now, the way it comes across in uh, our English translation, you can take it literally that there's two others above third place. Now, who would that be? Well, it could be Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then Daniel. Or it could be Belshazzar, the queen mother, and Daniel. But some take the view that the word in the original here actually could be referring to the actual name of a title. An official position that's third. And there was a word for it, but I couldn't really pronounce it, so I'm not going to bore you with it. But uh, it's actually a word for an official position. So it's not talking about a number, third, but a title. It's not important, but I just mentioned that to you. So he's very insistent. Now, in verses 17 and following to 23, Daniel does something interesting here. He contrasts Nebuchadnezzar his father, that is Belshazzar's father, or his predecessor, or his grandfather, whatever the relationship is, we're not exactly sure. He contrasts Nebuchadnezzar with Belshazzar from a theological perspective. And he goes through the whole story about Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the greatness of his kingdom. That's why in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, that he was the head of gold of that statue. That then there was the decreasing value in the metals that represented the following kingdoms, from gold to silver to bronze to iron, and iron mixed with clay. That there was... Something really, really great about nebuchadnezzar 's monarchy, and Daniel describes it here his really his absolute sovereignty from a human point of view. Talk about a a human who exercised a real sovereign rule. It was Nebuchadnezzar whom he would, he killed whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up and, and so on, whom he would, he humbled. So Nebuchadnezzar, he got inflated with pride because of the greatness of his kingdom. And he was warned by Daniel that he needed to watch out in the previous chapter, chapter 4. Daniel called him to repentance, Nebuchadnezzar, to repent of his sins, to humble himself before the Most High. But Nebuchadnezzar, he failed to respond. He didn't respond to the warning, and then he went through a humbling that was very interesting. Remember, we, there's a medical term for what happened to him. He was afflicted with lycanthropy. His mind, he became mentally ill, and he thought he was an animal until seven times passed over him. We don't know if that's seven years, seven months, seven days, I'm not sure. It was until he learned the lesson that the Most High in Heaven rules over the kingdom of men and gives the kingdom to whom he will. That was a great lesson for Nebuchadnezzar. He had to learn that. Once he learned it, then God brought him out of his insanity. He restored him to a whole mine. And he still put him back on his throne, and he ruled in greatness and majesty, and he was Blessed. Remember, as we watched Nebuchadnezzar, he grew in his knowledge of God. Every time he had these experiences, he praised God a little more clearly and fully. Until now, in chapter 4, he blesses his kingdom of people with, May peace be upon you. That's a new word from Nebuchadnezzar, something interesting we don't read before that he said. So I think a change of heart came over Nebuchadnezzar. Anyhow, Daniel reviews all that. And he reminds Belshazzar that he knew all of this. He knew Nebuchadnezzar's story. He was familiar with Nebuchadnezzar's experience. But he did not learn from it himself. He didn't apply any of that to himself. But this is what he brings out. Furthermore, and Daniel keeps adding to it, he says that Belshazzar deliberately took his sin against the Lord of Heaven to a whole new level. By commanding to bring out those golden vessels and drink from them, wine while he's praising false deities no greater desecration could have been thrown in the face of the true god than what he did and by god's response you can see it was very provocative to yahweh praising the gods who do not see or hear or know. I like it that Daniel says that because that is kind of the biblical way this idea appears many times in the Old Testament. This is how the Bible dismisses false gods. They don't hear, they don't see, they don't communicate. Many times, and sometimes just one thing that's mentioned, they don't hear anything, they can't talk. This is... This is in contrast to the living God who does all of the above. So, in other words, what Daniel is bringing him to is that he's in great danger. He's in great danger. He is treading on thin ice right here. And Daniel concludes by saying, But the God in whose hand is your breath, think of that. Paul preached that on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He preached it to the Athenian philosophers that in Him we live and move and have our being. We draw our very breath by His power. Paul preached that. That's a true... We're here alive this morning, breathing, fully alive, because God keeps us alive. Our breath comes from Him. This is what he says. So in other words, Belshazzar, in the most fundamental way, you're dependent on the God of Israel. He's the one who keeps you alive. And yet you have dared to do this in his face with his sacred vessels. So this was a a daring thing of sacrilege. So Daniel winds up This indictment of Belshazzar, you you have not honored him. He honored false deities to the exclusion of the true God. So he racked up many dreadful sins here, did he not? Then Daniel adds, verse 24, Then from his presence the hand was sent. So this, this whole thing of the armless hand writing on the wall, obviously, not an angel. God sent this. This was God's work. This is God's handwriting. We're to see here. I'm going to talk about the handwriting of God in a moment. It's an interesting thing in the Bible. He sent this writing which was inscribed. See that? The, Hebrew, the word here means it was etched, it was graven into the plaster so it was meant to remain. So here it is Daniel's going to give the interpretation. Now what what's interesting about this is that in the original this is these are nouns. There's three nouns here. And the first one is mentioned twice. Daniel in order to interpret it somehow he knew these need this needed to be turned into a verb. So he takes a noun, and from the root of the noun, he create, he made a verb out of it. And so it's, it's like this. It's numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. This is why the wise men couldn't read it. They didn't, number, number, weighed, divided? What does that mean? Well, Daniel knows what it means. So he goes on to explain it to him. So he turns it into a verb. Let's just think these through for a minute because there's interesting things that we can say about this. First of all, he says, God has numbered uh, the days of your kingdom, and it's come to an end. Now this, this isn't anything new. God has numbered the days of all the kingdoms. He has numbered the days of no, I'm going to say it, the days of the United States, for example, how long our country's going to last. He has numbered our days of our life, because Moses says in Psalm 90, "Lord, teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart to wisdom." In other words, this this is a a smart thing to do, to remember that there's there's bookends on our life—a time to be born and a time to die—and Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that by worrying and all that you can't add a single day to your life. God has it marked; our death day is on His calendar. So I'll be wise in the eyes of the word of God, in the eyes of God, if I think consciously every day, this is another day of life. Thank you, Father. I don't know if I'll have tomorrow, so I'm going to use this day uh, to its fullest. And then praise him the next morning when we wake up to see a new day. Thank you, Lord, for a a new day of life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to live life like that, with that consciousness that my life is in his hands. He has decided how long I'm going to live in this world. And I'm to be mindful of the fact that I'm marching into eternity. And it won't be long before we're all there. Hundred years from now, I can say absolutely everybody in this room. One hundred years from now, we will all be in eternity. A hundred years from now, none of us here will be around. And say that categorically. No one's going to live that long. So, this is a reminder to Belshazzar: God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and. His life, because his life ends that very night. Yeah, oh, that's powerful. Number, number is definitely the emphasis here. Now, the next thing is weighed, tekel, weighed. You know, in the ancient world, weights and scales were like the cash registers of the ancient world. This is how people paid for things. This is how they conducted business, by weighing out the various precious metals and exchanging and so on. But here it's a metaphor for being evaluated by God. By Him our thoughts and our actions are weighed Nebuchadnezzar was weighed in the scales of God. That's the metaphor. Now, just think of it. Okay, here's this king. He's on one side of the scale. What would be on the other side? Well, all that God required of him, according to what he knew. So did, did Belshazzar live up to the divine requirements? Is that scale going to be balanced? No, Daniel says, and it was found wanting. You are weighed in the scales and found wanting. In other words, you're totally deficient. So the scale, Belshazzar's here, and the weight on the other side is down here. uh, He's lighter than air, to use the, the language of the Bible. Not in this text, but somewhere else. Lighter than air. D. L. Moody preached a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments, the great American evangelist of the 19th century. And you know, I have his book at home called Weighed in the Balances. So he took this metaphor and applied it to being weighed in God's balances over against the commandments, the Ten Commandments. It's a good way to awaken people to their sin and their need for Jesus Christ to step into that scale with you on your side so that now everything's okay, you got Jesus Christ on your side and his righteousness will be put to your account so that you're not found wanting, found deficient. And then he says the final word, paris, That is divided. The word divided. And then Daniel interprets it. Your kingdom is divided. That is broken up in pieces and it's given to another. This is the idea. His kingdom is going to fall apart. Did he he think it was going to happen that night? Probably not. And it's going to be given to the Medes, and the Persians. That's the next great world empire. We're actually going to come to the first leader that's mentioned here, Darius the Mede, in the next chapter. Daniel's still alive. Now he's an old man when Darius the Mede takes over, still in his 80s, thrown into the lion's den because that's what's up next for Daniel. Belshazzar's very happy to... Here are the interpretation. We're not told what the effect of it was. I mean, it's one of doom and gloom and judgment. But he's faithful to follow through in his gifts. And he gives Daniel purple and the golden chain, makes him third in the kingdom, and all of that. Then the text goes on to say that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So the kingdom of Babylon falls at this point. There are some interesting things from history I want to bring out to emphasize that. So the important date for the fall of Babylon and the transfer of the kingdom over to the Medes and the Persians is 539. And I think the month was in October. October of 539, the fall of Babylon. Ancient Tradition tells us that they captured the city without a fight. And it was done by Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. And he was leading his troops, and this is how they did, because Babylon had 300-foot walls, and they were wide enough for chariots to ride abreast on them, with many gates but well, they had a water system that flowed in to the city from the river from the euphrates and the, the tradition is is that cyrus diverted the water that ran the waterway that ran into the city he divided he diverted the water and created an opening under the wall for his troops to go in and this is how he got into the city and in his own account, in the, the Cylinder of Cyrus, this is from his own record of this, he says he went in and took it without a battle. Everyone was asleep or drunk and nobody was prepared. His words. It's an amazing thing. And the ancient sources say that the capture and downfall of Babylon it took place during the celebration of a feast or festival, which also agrees with the text of Scripture here. Now, there's indication in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 51, verse 39, that talks about the fall of Babylon. I want to read one verse to you out of that chapter. Verse 39 of Jeremiah 51. This is the Word of God. While they are inflamed... I will prepare them a feast, and make them drunk, that they may become merry, then sleep, a perpetual sleep, and not wake, declares the Lord. This seems to add to the account. An actual prophecy that there's going to be some sort of feasting going on, drunkenness. And they're going to die. They're going to go to sleep. That's the Bible way of saying they're going to die. So this is the account of Belshazzar's feast. We mention now two things in conclusion. First of all, the word of God often puts people side by side. Pairs of people both Old and New Testament, in order to bring out the difference that the grace of God makes in people's lives, his grace, his mercy, and also to bring out the sovereignty of God's grace, that he doesn't bestow his grace on everybody. We see it at the beginning of the Bible with Cain and Abel. Cain represents a whole family of the godless it continues right on through. This is the seed of the serpent versus Abel, a man of faith. But they're put together as a great contrast. Who, what made the difference between Cain and Abel? Well, truly, it was the Lord. Not that there was something better in Abel that was not in his brother Cain. No, no, it's all attributed to God's grace. God was gracious to Abel. He impressed him with the importance of sacrifice, of blood sacrifice, versus Cain, who blew all that off. He was going to bring his own offering, very self-willed about what he thought God ought to accept. We all know the story, but there's the first pair. Then from Cain and Abel, we have Ishmael and Isaac. Both are sons of Abraham, but different mothers. Ishmael becomes really the father of the Arabs in the Bible. This is where many of the Arab nations come from. They come from Ishmael. This is why they claim that Abraham is their father. They're correct. They are related to Abraham. But they are entrenched in a false religion. Millions of them. Isaac is the son of promise. This is the where the true religion came through his line. The revelation of the true God culminating in his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who becomes the savior of the world. But what a contrast between those two. And then the next is Jacob and Esau, and so on. Right on to Saul and David. Look at Saul and David. What a contrast between these two. Saul had a wonderful start in life. He, Because of his how tall he was, how handsome he was. He was loved by everybody. But he kind of went off his rocker. In his treatment of Daniel, he was taken over by resentment and envy. He just, it was out of control. Versus David. What made the the difference between these men? Well, the, the, the grace and mercy of God. It's not because there was something better in David that was missing in Saul. In the New Testament, you have A couple of pairs as well. I just mentioned Peter and Judas. Both committed gross, heinous sin against the Lord Jesus. Peter's sin was as terrible as Judas's. Peter denied with curses that he knew Christ. The terrible thing. The difference between them is that one despaired of God's mercy and the other one repented. That's a great difference. Had Judas fallen on his face in the garden when he came to betray the Lord Jesus, he would have found mercy. Jesus would have forgiven him on the spot. He could have been saved. And then you have the two thieves that were on either side of Jesus. J. Vernon McGee has a great sermon on the cross divides men based on that. How the cross divides men. Both thieves started out really kind of adversarial toward Jesus in the middle, the middle cross. They both had committed sins worthy of a public execution. So these were people, bad people. But during that period of watching the man on the middle cross one of them began to have second thoughts about it and he came to an understanding given to him no doubt by the holy spirit of who was in the dying right next to them because he said lord remember me when you come into your kingdom boy what a what a change of mind for him to recognize that in his dying Again, the grace of God, the mercy of God makes the difference. And God's grace and mercy is sovereign. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So I I mention that because you have the same thing on display in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was given space to repent. He was given time to repent And he grew in his knowledge of God to the point where I believe he had a saving relationship with God eventually. Belshazzar was not granted that. He didn't get that opportunity. He's cut off. After his horrendous sacrilege, his life ends that very night. So this is... This is a warning to mankind. People who say, you know, I'm going to, I know what you're saying is true, that I need to repent, but I just can't do it yet. I want to I have some fun still for a while. You know, when I get on my deathbed, then, then I'll give Jesus thought again about this. And I'll turn to him then. Nobody can presume on that. That's the utter folly. The Bible says to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. then finally, let me talk for a minute about the handwriting of God. Three times in the Bible, God writes. Three times. This time, obviously. The first time was when he gave the law. Back in Exodus 20. And he actually wrote twice because Moses busted up those first tablets that God etched the Ten Commandments in. Moses was so angry when the people were carrying on an orgy while he was up on Sinai, he came down, he smashed the tablets in anger. God inscribed a second time. But it says that the 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 law was written with the finger of God. God wrote out his law there twice. And here his hand writes this message of doom and judgment on this Babylonian ruler. When is the third time that God writes? Well, you have to go into the New Testament for that. Can you guess? John chapter 8, in the first 11 verses, recounts Jesus coming in the morning into the temple complex to teach. And it says he sat down to teach. And while he's teaching in the morning in the temple, the rulers... Scribes and the Pharisees, they drag a woman in before him that was taken in the very act of adultery. And this is all intended to trap Jesus. And they say, Master, Moses commanded that she be put to death for adultery. That's, that was the law of Moses. But it was not just the woman, it was the man too, but they didn't bring him in. They only brought her. I mean, you just look at this, try to figure out this scene. They're trying to trap Jesus because it's putting him on the horns of of a dilemma. However he answers this, he's going to be in trouble because he can't say killer because that's against the Roman law. They could not execute or stone. But if he says, no, don't kill her, then he's breaking the law of Moses himself. So he's kind of, they think they've got him. Jesus says nothing. He, He bends down and he begins to doodle in the dirt. He wrote in the dirt. Now, don't try to figure out what Jesus wrote because that's not what's important. Nobody knows what he wrote. What we're to see in that is how he did it. He wrote on the ground, and the text says, with his finger. This is a reminder of the lawgiver back in the book of Exodus. And you know, how many times did he write? He bent down again a second time and wrote again. So this this is, he is portraying something that should be a reminder. This is why I think they got the point. This is the lawgiver now. And he says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And of course, all their consciences convicted them. I mean, there's such... Amazing wisdom in this, how the Lord Jesus Christ handled this situation in order to silence them and dismiss these hypocrites. And the text goes on to say, finally, he's left alone with the woman. And he said to her, woman, where where are your accusers? She says, there are none, Lord. He says neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. So, our position would be, without Jesus Christ, we would be in the position of just having the law of Moses over us and the doom of Sinai, the condemnation of the law, being accused, being condemned, no hope, But because the Savior is here, he stands between us and Moses. He intervenes. He steps in. And he brought about in a a glorious, illustrative way what Paul writes in Romans 8 when he says, you know, who will accuse us, who will condemn us? It is Christ that died. So those are the three examples of God's handwriting. I think it's a beautiful way to end this sermon, to give us hope. None of us will be in the shoes of Belshazzar, but it's a warning to the wicked. God will eventually deal with our sin and the gravity of it. So let's remember that. But we have the Lord Jesus to take care of our sin for us if we know him. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.